Well, let's open our Bibles to Psalm 8. It's on page 450 of your pew Bible, or there it is, right there in your bulletin too, so you don't even have to turn there. Today we begin a new sermon series titled, Centered on the Psalms. Oh, that our lives would be centered upon the wonderful truths that we see portrayed in the Psalms. A couple important points before we begin, and one is this, that that the book of the Psalms, though we often use it as kind of our own little prayer journal or or, um, means by which we come to God in prayer, it served a role in God's, with God's people as a hymnal. It is the hymnal of God's people. These are songs to be sung. The second point is this, Psalm 8 is a literary masterpiece. No extra words, no extraneous thoughts, just poetic genius. And the third point has to do with the first line. If you look at it, it's in all caps there. Uh, It's a liturgical notation. It's a notation to the choir master. This psalm is supposed to be played or sung according to the gittith, whatever that is. No one knows for sure what a gittith is. It could have been a familiar melody, could have been a a stringed instrument from from the nation of Gath or something else. And we're also told it's a psalm of, well, King David. The last point is this. If you look at the structure of this psalm, this psalm begins and ends with the same chorus of praise. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. What a great way to start off a sermon series titled Centered on the Psalms and with a psalm that, that um, begins and ends centered upon the majesty and glory of God. Now, before we read and turn our attention to the text, let me ask you, do you wish to live a fruitful life? Do you long for meaning and purpose in your life? Do you wish that that restlessness that you often experience in life could be, well, put to rest? This psalm we're about to study shows us that as we find our place in God's world, we discover God's meaning and purpose for our lives. Psalm 8. To the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of God, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, certainly if we want to know his way, then we must know his word. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you that you um, have given us this song to sing. May the truths that are conveyed by this great ancient King David um, fill our minds and hearts. May it cause us to have a melody in our lives that, that honors you and glorifies you in all that we do. We pray that you would help us to see all this and understand this and apply this by the spirit that we so desperately need. So send him that I might speak well and that your people may hear well and that we may rejoice in you, Lord, we pray. Amen. You know, as I look around this room this morning, um, I don't think that any of us would say we're not interested in living a life of meaning and purpose. We all desire to experience life to its fullest, right? And outside of these walls, there are tens of thousands of people in our community, perhaps a few tens of thousands more this weekend, uh, who long deeply for a fulfilled life. The problem is, we are told countless ways to experience a life worth living. Just Google a life worth living, and I've done that, and, and you will see that there's all sorts of books and lists and suggestions And if you were to summarize the main ideas that I found, there is something along these lines. Uh, You are number one. Look out for number one. You have within you the power to be happy. You don't need anything outside of yourself. Do not let anyone tell you who to be or how to act. Decide for yourself what is true and live by it. Seek happiness for yourself, however you may find it. Life is about you living out your dreams in your life. And don't worry, if there is a God above, then surely he understands. He wants you to be free, even free from him, if that's what makes you happy. This message is seductive and attractive, isn't it? We love to hear that we are the center of our own little world. From infants, we feel like we are, and we never seem to outgrow it, do we? Who doesn't want life to revolve around themselves? And so we gladly embrace this life lived chasing our own pleasure. The problem is this, though. Many of you know this firsthand. Living this way, especially the older you get, the more restless you become, right? Someone, always, someone else always seems to have a, a little bit better world that they live in than you. And the happiness that we seek apart from God is elusive. Even though we may have it in our hands for a moment, it can slip through our fingers. And is it not true that some, often when we achieve something that we think is going to make us happy, we get bored with it, we put it down and reach for something else? We become restless when we live this way. But many people will say, yeah, I'm tired of this, I'm restless, but is there any other way? Is there any other way in which to live, in which you don't become restless? There is another way, thankfully. It's the way of the gospel. The psalmist knows it, and he shows it to us. See, this beautiful psalm corrects our foolish musings and welcomes us to find our place in God's world. It helps us to see this big important truth that the only life worth living is a life lived delighting in one's creator. That's what we're going to look at this morning. 
We're going to look at it in these three areas. First, a life worth living relates to God as creator. Second, a life worth living finds its significance from God. And lastly, a life worth living finds its purpose from God. First, a life worth living relates to God as creator. The psalmist helps us sing this song that helps us to see that this is all God's world. He is a creator and we are not. And guess what? That's a good thing. But more than that, he shows us that we need to know him relationally as our creator. David helps you sing that God is God and you are not. Look at the last part of verse 1. We read, you have set your glory above the heavens. Here David acknowledges and delights that God is creator of all. See, setting his glory above the heavens means that that God is outside of creation. Have you ever thought of that? God is outside of creation. God is the sovereign creator of all. Creation was, guess what, his idea. Creation was and is his doing. This is his creation that you live in. As verse 3 describes creation, it's it's the work of God's fingers. So there is but one creator of all. And I'm sorry to say, it's not you. And the sooner that you and I come to realize this, the sooner we can begin living rightly upon God's earth. So we must know that God is our creator. But when the Bible speaks of knowing God, it typically doesn't mean knowing God abstractly or just merely intellectually knowing God. As if, you know... I know Queen Elizabeth intellectually. I know her and so do you. But Prince Charles knows the queen in a little different level, does he not? He knows her at a personal level. He doesn't call his mother your royal highness, right? He calls her mom. More likely, mum, right? David delights that he knows his creator personally. How do we see this? How do we know this? Well, look at the beginning of verse 1. It says, O Lord, our Lord. Now, we've discussed this often here at Grace Church, but when you see the word Lord in all caps in your Bible, in your Old Testament, that is actually um, uh, a translation of four letters in the Hebrew alphabet. They're all consonants. Yah, um, it's uh, Yod and Wa and Heth and Wa, and it's consonants. We have to fill in the, uh, you know, the, um, the rest of the word. So how does it sound? It's, 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 most likely the word is Yahweh, Yahweh. And what is Yahweh? Yahweh is a name. And it's not just any name. It's God's name. It's the name that God gave his people, Yahweh. Do you remember in... Um, in Exodus chapter 3, when, when God was talking with Moses and he was sending him into Egypt to deliver his people, and Moses was like, yeah, but all right, so they're not going to believe me when I say you sent me, so uh, I'm going to need your name, right? You're the personal God who's going to save. What is your name? And here's what, here's what God said to Moses in verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he, and, and he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me. To you. God's name conveys a number of truths. Um, Yahweh is derived from the Hebrew verb to be. God is who he is. 
there is no other. Though all the universe has been created, God is. He's able to say, I am. But it also shows his people that he is a personal God. It also relates to God's, this is God's covenant name. In in another sense, God is saying, I am the God who is there for my people. And I will always be there for my people. God cares for them. And so David helps us to delight that God is not just creator of all. He is also I am for his people. David sings that God's name is majestic in all the earth. The point is, is that God's power and glory and majesty is on display through all that he has created. Just look at the stars. Just consider their magnificent beauty. Consider the order of creation. The proper response is to marvel who created all of this. But not everybody comes to that proper conclusion. Many insist that this world just came about on its own, you know, that there's no mind or power behind it. It just somehow, well, happened. Verse 2 highlights that though praise of God should be the creature's right response, we see that God has foes, an enemy, an avenger. They sound strong and powerful with all their supposed reason. But as verse says, out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. The psalmist here goes to an imagery of vulnerability. What is more vulnerable than infants and toddlers? They're, they're supposedly weak. And he uses this to contrast with the supposed power of those who stand as God's enemies over and against those who are faithful ones. And does, isn't it true that often as we, as we walk this life of faith, we feel weak. We feel as if there's a lot of God's enemies out there to oppress us. Here we see that the weak overcome the strong. Paul, Paul writes um, these words a thousand years later. He says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So the first two verses of this psalm help the, the people of God to sing and to celebrate uh, the Creator's glory and majesty and to delight that they belong by God's grace to the redeemed family of God and that Yahweh, their Lord, holds all of creation in His hands. And, and no matter how many a people, no matter how many people oppose God's people, Yahweh's power and glory prevails oh that we would sing that we know and delight in our creator that he is God and we are not that this is his world not our world then and only then will we begin to find our proper place in it a life worth living begins with knowing that 
God, knowing God as your loving and majestic creator. But the psalmist takes us further. A life worth living finds its significance from God. Here the psalmist helps us to marvel and rejoice over the astonishing dignity that God gives us as human beings. It's true, isn't it, that in our culture, many people think that, well, dignity is in our own hands, that dignity, worth, and significance come into your life by what you do to earn it. You make yourself to have dignity or glory by becoming popular at school or getting good grades or, being a, or excelling on the sports field or going to some prestigious university and getting a great degree or by the fancy car you drive or the nice watch or the jewelry that you have. Do we not feel significant? Well, maybe not the guys here. Do we not feel significant when someone asks, what bag are you carrying? And you're able to say, well, it's a Prada and a real one. (laughs) Generations of Americans have lived under the lie that ultimate dignity and significance are something that you have to earn. Thankfully, the psalmist here helps us to see that our true significance isn't manufactured, it's derived as a gift from God. It's derived from our creator. The psalmist David first shows us that human beings are significant. Because why? Because God has pledged his care towards us. Look at verse 3 and 4. Here the psalmist marvels at what we would be wise to marvel at as well. How on earth, he sings, can the majestic Glorious God, who is enthroned outside of creation, even bat an eye at puny little mankind on that distant planet in that galaxy far, far away. I know that's not exactly what it says there, but that's just summarizing what he says. Let's read it. And picture the marvel that David has here. When I look at your heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. What is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. The son of man is just another way of saying man, right? This is poetry, right? Picture King David when he was a young shepherd watching over his father's flocks at night. And he's sitting on some hillside board out of his gourd and... and, uh, There's nothing on his Apple news feed that's interesting, you know, and he's already checked his stocks, so he's got nothing else to do. Uh, Maybe maybe the power's gone on his phone. I don't know, but he's sitting there and looking up at the sky with wonder. He sees the moon and the stars and acknowledges that this is God's handiwork. He calls them your heavens, you see that? And the work of your fingers. And David marvels at God's craftsmanship and skill. David looks at the sky and he marvels at God. How much more so should we? We moderns with great science um, that has taken place over the generations. We have come to see that the universe is far larger than what the ancients could ever have imagined. Billions and billions of light years across. What a glorious God. 
And why on earth would he even consider us? What is it? David is thinking of God. Check this out. As he is thinking of God, David marvels that God would even think of him. My friends, it's arrogance to think otherwise. Of course God would be thinking of me. With joyful consternation, he declares, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? David's soul is filled with rejoicing at the recognition that God is mindful of mankind. More than that, he cares for mankind. We cannot take that for granted, but it is true nonetheless. Have you ever marveled at God's creative glory and majesty and thought how on earth could he even be interested in human beings? Have you ever thought of that? I mean, this is a really important exercise. In fact, if you want to have a life worth living, I would think that it would be a necessary step. See, something magnificent takes place when you ponder the power and the majesty and the glory of God as seen in his creation. And then when you consider how on earth could he even be mindful of me? What does it do? One, it produces in you a humility. And guess what? Without humility, you cannot know God. Two, it produces affection. This is my God. My God is for me. Yes, even though I go through hardships and trials, he uses them for his good and for my good. And third, it produces in us devotion. Why on earth would I center my life on anything else? See, when you ponder rightly what David expresses here, then you come to see that you are significant. And not because of anything that you have have manufactured. You are significant because God is mindful of you. You know, the other night I watched Forrest Gump. (laughs) Uh, Forrest was born with crippled legs and an IQ in the 70s. When he was young, kids bullied him. When he was a grown man, adults mocked him. But not his mother. In his mother's eyes, Forrest was significant. Whenever life provided some insult or challenge, do you recall what Forrest would do? He'd always think of something his mother told him. And then we begin with this same old phrase, my mama always said. My mama always said, stupid is as stupid does. My mama always said, life is like a box of chocolates. Forrest Gump felt significant, not because of what he achieved, but simply because his mother was mindful of him. How much more then should we recognize That ultimately, our significance is not derived by what we achieve or possess, but simply because God is mindful of us. So our significance comes from God because he's pledged to be mindful, to care for us, 
We also see that our significance comes from God because he has bestowed us with dignity. Look at verse 5. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. He's not saying, oh, look how low you are. No, he's saying, look how high you are. You're just a little bit lower than the heavenly beings. And he says, and, and crowned him with glory and honor. You know, verses 5 through 8, they assume that we know the first opening chapters of the Bible. It assumes that we know the creation account, where we see the Bible describing the work of God's fingers, how God creates the heavens and the earth, the stars and the moons, the land and the sea, the trees and the plants and the birds and the sea creatures and the land animals. And, And his final creation act was what? To make man, male and female, in his image to reflect his glory throughout creation. Did you notice in verse 1 that we read that God's glory is set above the heavens? And now amazingly in verse 5 we read what? That God crowned mankind with glory. Divine glory comes to earth and it's in printed upon human beings made in God's image. Talk about self-esteem. When we really fully realize that esteem isn't something we manufacture, but it comes from our creator and is given to us because of the glory that he's imprinted upon us. My friends, God has a very high regard for humanity. We're made in his image to reflect his glory. These are his characteristics. And it says that God is crowned humanity with them. You know, crowns in ancient, in ancient Israel were often um, just simply made with like, like flowers um, or palm fronds, right? One type of crown was worn at banquets by distinguished guests as a sign of honor and elevation. That's probably what David is singing about here. Human beings have been crowned and with an exalted status over all the creatures of earth. You know, today's society, we almost equate animals with human beings. You know, we, we give dogs like human qualities, right? We feed them our food, right? They eat better than we do, right? I'm not against dogs. I'm very pro-dog. I've got a dog. I love my dog. But you see... Yes, we have flesh and blood and bones like cows and horses and dogs, but we're not on the same level as them. Only God's creatures, mankind alone, is crowned with glory and honor of all of God's creatures. It's we who have been bestowed with this great crown of glory. And only man is said to image God here on earth. Human beings are glorious. Even after the fall in Genesis chapter 3, humanity retains the image of God, but now that glory in us is broken and fragmented. It can be hard to see, right? Hard to see in others. And if we're honest, it can be hard to see in ourselves. The important truth for us is, for us is this, though. 
for us to find our proper place in God's world, we must recognize that whatever glory we have is a derived glory. It flows from God to humanity. He is the one who decided to make man in his image. He is the one who crowns humanity with glory and honor. Once again, God alone is the good creator, and we are his creatures. But we're not any ordinary creature. We have been crowned with glory and honor. God made us with great significance. So a life worth living finds its significance from God. Some of us, if not all of us, really need to hear that our significance comes from our creator. We need to stop thinking that our identity, that our status comes from the schools we go to or the sports we participate in or in our work or in how pretty our homes look or in our possessions. On top of that, we need to begin seeing that every human being is of infinite value and worth in God's eyes. He is mindful of them. He cares for them, even if we don't. Whether the poorest of beggars or the wealthiest of bankers, every human being in some way retains this glorious image of God in them. As broken as it may be, it is there. And we need to have eyes to see it and rejoice in it. So a life worth living relates to God as loving creator and finds its significance from God. Lastly, a life worth living finds its purpose from God. You know, I, I get to listen to a lot of young people, a lot of recent college graduates, and, and many of them, but not all, certainly not all, suffer from what I would call vocational paralysis. <laughs> that is, they, they sense that there is some mythical job out there that would perfectly suit them and make them come alive, but they just don't know where it is, they haven't found it, and so they're paralyzed in their current jobs. They just do enough to keep the boss off their backs but they don't take much initiative to find another job, partly because they really don't know what that job would be. Other than being a famous singer or a movie critic, those jobs, well, they're really hard to come by, right? Now, this is a fairly new phenomenon. A couple generations ago, if you were a girl, you would do most likely what your mother did. You would, you would work in the home. And if you were a boy, you would do what your father did. You'd be a farmer or a mechanic or a coal miner Nowadays, almost no one wants to do what their parents did, uh, unless they were lazy bums. <laughs> All right, that was a joke. That was not good. <laughs> Couple with that, um, what is it that our schools teach our kids? They, they tell our kids, you can be whatever you want. The world is yours. Don't settle for anything less than the perfect life. And whatever you do, don't let anyone tell you what you can or cannot do. Problems what? graduate with that fashion design degree, and your first job is not a fashion designer, but a manager at TJ Maxx, and you manage the men's socks department, and you begin to feel that everyone was lying to you. You really can't just be whatever you want to be. You either don't have the natural abilities or the training or the lucky breaks 
And then also, if you're honest, perhaps you made some foolish choices that didn't help matters much. Some of you are like going, yeah, I did that, all right. Okay. And the next thing you know is that this life worth living seems like a pipe dream. Now, these sentiments aren't just felt by those who are young. They're felt by many people of all ages who are trying to find meaning and purpose in life through their careers. If that's you, then David's words in verses 6 through 8 should help you understand your God-given purpose in life. Verse 6. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the fields, and even dogs. Okay, that's not in there. Uh, And the birds of heaven, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Wow. That sounds pretty cool. Is it true? What does it mean? Well, the word dominion is an important one. The Hebrew word is mashal. It literally means to rule or to govern. You know, in the colonial days when England colonized America, the king sent over what? Governors to represent his authority, to rule in his place as if he were present there. Check this out. In a similar but perfect and good way, God created mankind in his image and crowned him and her with glory and honor for the purpose of ruling over God's good creation on God's behalf. Like like a prince or a princess given the world to fill and to populate, to, to, to fill with culture and society and inventions. God gave them, Adam and Eve, dominion over the earth. Wow. I want to talk about amazing calling. Even after the fall, even after Genesis 3, what do we see? That, 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 that calling is still upon us. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it. As those who have a relationship with God, rule over this world as if God is ruling through you. Talk about real meaning and purpose to live out your days with. Nothing compares with it. Think this through. Is there any greater calling than that which God has given to mankind than to rule in his place over this beautiful creation that he has created? To find out how God has uniquely made you to live out that purpose, whether you like your boss or not, whether you're a coal miner or not, no matter what you do. Represent God on this earth, to care for this planet in ways that honor God, to create societies and cultures that reflect God's goodness. But perhaps you realize this isn't how the world is, Mark. This is not like that. There's not much good ruling going on. I can hardly even rule my own emotions, let alone a society. And when we look around, we don't see people caring that God is mindful of them. Nor do we see people ruling well. The world is the way it is because mankind has rejected its creator and now selfishly seeks a life worth living apart from God. 
as Romans 1 describes, we've rejected our creator and we now worship created things. No wonder the world is so miserable. The things of God were never meant to substitute for God himself. And so this world now is full of bitterness and rivalry and jealousy and famine and poverty and racism and neglect of neighbor. And the best solutions that we keep hearing over and over and over again is that we need more education and more legislation. We just need to teach people more how better to live. And then if they screw up, well, we'll have the laws to lock them up. I don't know about you, but the more I look back in history and the more I get older and older, the less I really truly believe that mankind is going to solve the earth's problems. Now this must not, though, leave us despairing without hope. You know, if you do that Google search, A Life Worth Living, the very first thing that pops up is a book on the life of Albert Camus the French existentialist writer and playwright. The existentialist found that life was meaningless. There is no purpose under the sun. And it drove them to despair. But we must not despair. We must remember, one, that God is mindful of us. He cares for mankind made in his image. And he will not abandon his creation. But he will redeem it and restore it. And this work has already begun. What has God done? God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, the perfect man who lived this life of reflecting God's glory and ruling and reigning on earth with perfection. And he died in our place because we can't do that well and we don't even want to do that well. He came to rule in our place so that we can be restored to God and experience renewal in our own lives. Live for his glory. Now, Perhaps you're saying, Mark, how do we see this in like Psalm 8, man? That's like a thousand years before Jesus. Well, one, Jesus himself quoted verse 2 with a talk about infants and babies speaking and, and putting away the enemies and the foes. Jesus walked into Jerusalem on the last days before he was going to die, and he did miracles. He healed the lame and the, and the, and the blind, and, and, the, and the children were singing Hosanna's in the highest, and the religious leaders were like, you jerk. Right? They rejected Jesus, and Jesus quoted this very thing. Those infants here, they know me. They know what I'm up to. You are God's foes. Jesus quoted that. But more than that, the book of Hebrews, in chapter 2, um, actually quotes this. The writer does, verses 4 through 6. And he says that Jesus is really the one that this psalm is talking about. He was the one made a little bit lower than the angels. Picture that. The Son of God, who for all eternity lived with perfect glory and adoration, surrounded by countless angels worshiping day and night, and he left that magnificent significance to become insignificant. A a little infant, no less. In an insignificant land, born to an insignificant people. This psalm is about Jesus because we can't do it this psalm well without Jesus. 
Jesus was the one who fulfilled it perfectly. And if you go read that passage in Hebrews, it says that Jesus is crowned with glory and honor. Why was he crowned with glory and honor? We can't earn our crowns, but what we see here is is he became crowned with glory and honor. Why? Because he suffered and tasted death for us. Oh, there's a so that. Why? So that, these are not my words, they are his words. So that the grace of God may come to us. Amazing. Jesus willingly became less than angels. He took on human flesh. He became weak and poor and trampled upon, mocked and ridiculed. All the while, he's the son of God, the king of kings, the one who rules and reigns and who is now seated on his throne. God suffers for our sakes. That's just amazing. God enters into this world and suffers for our sakes. Now, I don't know about you. I'm left thinking, God, what are you doing, right? Why don't you just abandon this world? You know, you sit far above it. We're billions of light years away from you. We're insignificant people screwing this world over, not caring for its resources, caring less about people made in your image. Why don't you just say, hey, you've made that bed. Now you go lie in it, humanity. You get what you deserve. Why would God enter into this broken world and rescue us and return our lives back to him? It cannot be because we've shown progress. It cannot be because we've proven ourselves worthy. We've not earned God's favor. We've earned his rejection. So then why? Why such love and commitment? Because though mankind might have rejected its creator, the creator has not rejected mankind. See, though mankind is not mindful of God, God remains mindful of us. God has stamped his indelible image upon us. And therefore, he will not abandon us. That which he has crowned with glory and honor. Though we do not deserve to wear the crown of the distinguished guest at God's banquet table. In Christ, he has made us worthy. I hope we learn this morning as best we can that the, you know, a life well lived cannot be found apart from a relationship with your creator. More than that, a, a relationship with your creator that, that you come to know him intimately and personally as Yahweh, the God who is there for you. And, and to know the son who entered into earth who made himself lower than the angels for you. Why? Because God values you. May we realize that there is no life to be lived outside of a life where we recognize that we are the creature, he is the creator, we're loved by him, we're being changed by him, and one day we will see him face to face. And that changes how we live today. 
you know, I got an exercise perhaps you could do. Maybe if you got kids, do it with them. Maybe, uh, maybe tonight, um, you know, go out to the beach when it's dark or sit, sit on a, in a field somewhere, you know. Uh, watch out for the ticks, though. Uh, and, and I'm sorry, now no one's going to do this. All right, but, you know, take your Bible uh, and, and just sit there quietly. Turn off your phones, right? And meditate on Psalm 8. Remind yourself of, uh, go, go through the experiences that, that David went through. Press these words deep into your soul. Believe them. Why? Because they're true. And, and, and find the melody for these words in your own life. You know, I think it's kind of helpful that we, we don't know what a gittif is. Right? I mean, how do you sing this song? What's the melody? How do you play it on guitar? I don't know. But here's the deal. These are the words for all mankind, but they're for you to find your own melody to them. How has God uniquely wired you to live out what we read in Psalm 8? Come up with a melody. God will allow you to do that. But what does that look like in your own life? Take time to find yourself under God's authority and under His love. And allow that to be lived out. So go through that exercise and then return next Sabbath day. And with all God's people, join voices and say, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that um, we are not alone. Though our hearts are often restless, Though we're often turned towards things in your creation to give us contentment, we've been rebuked this morning. We want to let go of all those things that have captured our hearts and minds. And first and foremost, uh, place our hearts and minds upon you and your care for us. We thank you that you are mindful of your people, that our significance is true and real because you care for us because you've created us with dignity. May we walk in that truth today, we pray. Amen.